Everybody, it's the 300th episode of Dopey, and before we start, we'd like to thank our longtime friends and sponsors of the show, Aloe Recoveries, for sticking it out with us. Aloe, of course, was created by our good friends, Evan, Jared, Bob, and the great Bob Forrest. They have spots in Malibu, West Hollywood, and Silver Lake. Their motto is to treat addicts and alcoholics with compassion and connection rather than control. They have decades and decades and decades of experience in treating addiction, alcoholism, and co-occurring mental health disorders, including severe mental illness. They make sure whatever you're kicking, your detox is as comfortable as possible, which is key. It's very important to have as comfortable a detox as possible which is especially key if you're kicking heroin or benzos or alcohol. I have friends that have been to Aloe. They say how amazing it was. Besides the amazing amenities, they said just the way they were treated and the recovery tools that they got and just the fact that there was a sincere effort in helping them and caring about them. Their amenities are amazing, though. They have sound bath meditation, equine therapy, fucking yoga, the potentially spiritually... Uh, uplifting sweat lodge. They do it all. If you're fucked and you're willing to go to sunny Southern California, I highly recommend going to Aloe. This episode of Dopey is brought to you by our friends at Sober Buddy. Sober Buddy is back, and I want to talk to you about them. It is super available to you if you need some help with your sobriety. It's the little blue fluffy guy you may have seen in sober memes on Instagram or Facebook. You can either use their free services called Sober Buddy Mail, which is a daily email with bite-sized sober challenges plus motivation and tips that are super helpful, or you can download the Your Sober Buddy app, which is an interactive version that shifts your challenges and motivation based on how you respond to it. The app also has a sober tracker that's down to the second and daily check-ins from Buddy, where he asks you how you're feeling and if you're sober, and then he gives you advice based on your mood. Right now, Sober Buddy has over 30,000 people using their service to get sober, and I know we've had a bunch of dopey listeners using it, and they really love it. If you're interested, check them out on YourSoberBuddy.com. You can see all of their services there. 
It's super nice to have these free and inexpensive resources out there for everyone now. It's been a long time coming. Again, that's YourSoberBuddy.com if you're interested. YourSoberBuddy.com. Check them out. This 300th episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our friends at Soberlink because somebody cares about your recovery. Unfortunately, relapse is so common, especially when it comes to alcohol because it is widely available and highly prevalent in many social settings. That's why having true accountability and a deterrent from drinking is so important for staying sober. Soberlink has been empowering and helping people with alcohol use disorder since 2011 and is trusted by hundreds of treatment facilities. The Soberlink system consists of a portable handheld device that documents proof of sobriety in real time, keeping you connected to your family, friends, sponsor, treatment professional, recovery coach, or anyone else who worries about your well-being. As an exclusive offer to our listeners, email info at soberlink.com and mention Dopey for $50 off your device. Do it for that someone who cares. Let Soberlink help you to stay off the sauce. And finally, for our 300th episode, and most importantly, I would like to thank Everyone in the Dopey Nation, there is no Dopey without the Dopey Nation, and there just might not be Dopey without Dopey Patreon. So if you are a Patreon member, you know that last week we put out the never-before-seen sizzle reel of The Last Jewish Waiter, uh, which a lot of you seem to really like, where I'm kind of a dick, Aurora's in it, fucking lots of cats as people are in it, the fish tank is in it, uh... I totally recommend checking it out. All you have to do is sign up for Patreon at www.patreon.com slash dopeypodcast. For some reason, my dad didn't like it, though. I don't know why my dad didn't like it, but he didn't. But, you know, what are you going to do? Kick down to Patreon. It helps keeping dopey as dopey, happy, and free as possible. So kick down to Patreon at patreon.com slash dopeypodcast and sign up. And if you want gear, you go to dopeypodcast.com. We're about to take most of the designs down. So if there was a design that you were looking at, I would jump on it now. We're only going to keep, like, a few things. We're going to keep the classic Big Bird and the Good So Bad and the Dopey logo. But I think everything else is coming down. Everything else must go. So check it out now. Also, I have hats. I have, uh, there's hats on the website, and I still have some hats. I have, uh, the black and white classic dopey snapback, the blue and red dopey snapback, and the exclusive Knickerbocker playoff edition blue and orange dopey snapback. I also have, I have, like, one of those. So just run to the fucking Venmo. Uh, I have, uh, 14 Oyve snapbacks if you want them. Run to the Venmo. Or don't. Either way, it is the 300th episode, so enough with the fucking ads. Here is the fucking show. Hello and welcome to Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. My name is Dave. And I'm with the lovely Linda. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. 300 episodes in. Uh, pretty miraculous stuff. What do you think? 
It is amazing. And if somebody told you, I remember, I remember very well when you when I told you about Dopey and how much you hated the idea of it. Could you have imagined that it would last for roughly three hundred weeks later? Definitely not. And then, and now I'm sitting here in my Dopey merch. I'm wearing a Dopey tank top. I pretty much wear Dopey gear every day, and um, it's true. Yeah, and that's just you know, it, there's Dopey stickers in every orifice of our home. Um, dopey stuff is everywhere. Dopey stuff is everywhere. We have Dopey gifts that people have sent. Tell them about the when we just got the uh, the Black Santa in the mail. I don't oh, even know. That's right. I don't even know who sent it. Well, it was funny because there was this like thing that was going on where I remember. I think you and I talked about it, but people were getting weird packages from China, so and they didn't know what it was. Do you, do you remember reading about that? Or no, but the you news? told me, yeah. So like, like it would just be like strange, uh, strange things were just coming to different people's houses from China. I don't remember what why that happened, or it was it was a whole thing. So we get this weird package. It was a soda stream box. It was in a soda stream box, and we, we don't you get could soda tell, stream. You could tell it wasn't a real soda stream box. Right, and it just reminded me. I was like, oh, I think it's that thing that I read about in the news, you know, of just getting stuff sent from random places. And uh, so we're all gathering around it at the breakfast bar, and Dave opens it up, and it's a black Santa Claus that came, you know, it wasn't Christmas time. It was like two months ago. No, it was a black Santa Claus, <laughs> and someone had taken a marker yeah. and, like, colored in... The fringe of his hat, is black. Like, I think. Yeah, yeah. that that kind of made it kind of questionable. Uh, so but I, but I, and Nora, who was it? I, who sent I, it? I wonder who it was. So could the person who sent the black Santa please own please up? Please stand it? up. Yeah, please please take responsibility. If you sent the black Santa, write us an email at dopeypodcast at gmail dot com or. Just drop us a line because. But what's the? I don't understand. So Dave said there's a story. I was like, why no. would someone send you that? But you said that you talked about it on an episode. Black Santa, or I, you I, like Black Santa? I like Black Santa. I've always liked Black Santa. Okay. That's my favorite emoji. That is my most used emoji. Okay. Oh, okay. I am. I like Black Santa. So I, where is Black Santa going to go this coming Christmas? Wherever you'll tolerate him to be. So, I think under so the, the tree. garbage. No, uh, right now he's under a pile of clothes on my. On my with dresser. Your, with your equipment. With my, with my <laughs> equipment, exactly. Is that where Black Santa is? Black Santa is guarding the unopened equipment. However, I think, listen, I was talking to Sam. Like, Sam is, like, begging me to open the equipment. Lots right. of people. I don't, I don't blame him. Lots of people are begging me to open the equipment. You refuse to hold the mic in front of your mouth. It's like... I don't know how much further this thing can go in my mouth. Do you want to... Wow. Do you want to wear the headphones? Because you'll hear, you'll hear the. No, I'm uh, good. I'm, okay. I'm fine. So, more importantly than any <laughs> of that stuff, like once May, May used to hit our house, mm -hmm. and we would have Mother's Day and Linda's birthday at the same time, right. which is always like it's a lot. It's a lot of pressure. It's, he it's heavy duty. It's heavy duty. And now it's Susan's birthday this week too. A week later. So like. Last weekend, it was your birthday and Mother's Day on mm -hmm. the same day. Yeah. And like, why do you seem so like aggravated about that? It's just me getting too much. No, it's like no, too much no. attention for me. It just it. You know that it set the axis of our house like on its side. Yeah. It was just like heavy duty in every way, 
And uh, me and Nora got into this terrible fight. First, you and Nora got into some kind of thing. Then me and Nora got into some kind of thing. Then, like, I, like, grabbed Nora to go out to buy, like, to pick up your flower arrangement. And then we were going to go out to breakfast. And then when we came home, Linda was like, okay, let's go. And she grabbed her pocketbook. And what happened, Linda? Yeah. So this, well, this was the second time. Tell, tell the story. The Dopey Nation is very, very interested the, in the cat. It's just getting really, it's getting really tough with this cat because Onyx is such a sweetheart. Like, I wish Onyx sucked. Like, I wish Onyx scratched Susan or, or bit. Nora. Or, or just, like, wasn't just the absolute biggest love bug. And, and she's just, it stinks how, how awesome Onyx is. However... Onyx, I think it's I think it's mostly just me now. I think I am being targeted. And I think it's because Onyx um, really wants my attention more than anybody else's. And I'm distracted. There's two other kids. There's a house. There's a family. You know, and Onyx just wants me to sit on the couch with her all day and just hold her. And um, so I got a pocketbook. And about, I guess this was, uh, I got a pocketbook for my, I don't know, for, for something some special occasion a month ago and Onyx jumped in the pocketbook that was on the floor and, the, and, and sprayed all over the inside of my pocketbook. Did she spray or did she pee? It's spray. Okay. The difference, there's the smell of spray is dramatically different than the smell of pee. Did you see the thing I tagged I don't you care in? what he says. Did you look at it? Uh, no. Did you notice? I, I, Jackson I, Galaxy has a pee kit. It's not pee. No, no, no. It said unwanted pee or spray. Okay. Did you want it? Should I get you the kit? Listen. So then, do you want the kit? It was a. It was a. Hold pre- on. Do you want? I the don't kit? want the kit. Why not? Because I just want to be angry and tell my story. Okay. So so yeah. So that was like a month ago. Then I went back to the same store in my town. They did not have the same pocketbook that I had gotten that Onyx destroyed because when a cat sprays on something, it's done. It's done. First pocketbook. It book. is, and you can't put it, and you can't like. Hand wash this kind of shit. I out. think you could have though. It had a sort of rubbery quality to cat, it. But here's what they say about spray, and maybe what's his name, Galaxy Jackson, Jackson Galaxy, whatever his name is. He might attest to this. Cat's sense of smell is incredibly sharp. So even if you like, they 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 say that it's a cat will continue to spray even if you clean an area over and over again because they can smell it. So I'm like, you know what? I'm getting rid of this pocketbook. Fuck it. I threw it out. Went back to the store, bought this. They didn't have the same pocketbook, but I bought like a similar one. Okay. Then on my birthday, birthday slash Mother's Day, we're we're stressed out. We're trying to get out of the house. Hectic day. I go to pick up my pocketbook. It's drenched. It has soaked not only through the pocketbook but onto the couch, all over my favorite wallet. Second, 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 second pocketbook from the same store. Jumped back in my pocketbook, this cat, and sprayed it again. Threw the pocketbook out again. And, um, yeah. And you'd I think... I, I, like, actually, like, repressed... I out. totally blocked it out. You'd think so, that I, would ruin Mother's Day. And yet... Mother's Day was, was a challenging day. But we did good. We did good. Well, we were very... How about f- the food? We didn't have... Di- like, tell that story. About uh, we didn't have dinner. I, uh, I thought well, we, that's your that's your fault. I figured we could just order a meal from the place we always. Well, order Dave a meal. doesn't realize that every 
everybody on Mother's Day, no mom wants to cook. So everybody is ordering out or going out to eat. Like, the whole point is that, like, nobody wants to. So Dave just thinks, like, he can call do, the do, day. Do. He can call the day up to, like, the most popular place in town. Like, can I get a, a family meal? He's, like, starts laughing. He's, like, no. It's funny because Linda's mom, before, before I found out that we couldn't just order the family meal the day of, Linda's mom's, like, Dave, I want you to cook Burgers on oh. the grill, because mm-hmm. Tony would always make chicken cutlets with peppers. Yeah, <laughs> and, and I was like, and I was looking at your mom, at Linda. I was like, I was like, your mom's so annoying. Like, what does she want me to fucking cook? She wants she want a home cooked meal by the men. Right. She thinks that's Just like a fun. Maybe thing. you and Alan could cook us something tonight. Mm, well, and uh, and I was like, no big deal, whatever, whatever. And I and like can't do it. We're driving. We went to this farm. Like every every. Thing we get out of like like the pocketbook gets ruined, but Nora bought her a different bag, and we right. went to the farm and we had this nice time. And then on the way home, you're like, "Why don't you order the dinner?" And I call him up, and he can order it. And I was like, "Uh oh!" And then you got so mad. Well, because Dave's like, "I'll just grill." Now, mind you, the grill has not been looked at or touched. There's like rats living since in the grill. last summer. There's like a squirrel family that's like huddling for warmth right. in there right now. So it had, you know, mold on the on the bits of old burger from last. There's June. no mold. I don't know why you think there's mold. It Most, burns. There's no mold. Dave Dave thinks that just the burning the fire of the it. fire means like it's going to be like like sparkling ready for you the next the next year. Forget the fact that there's been like storms. He doesn't cover it. There's not a cover on our grill. The fire burns right, clean. Dave, right. So that's right. So I'm said the Dave because at this point I'm I'm you know, pretty pissed off. I said, I'm not eating anything from that grill. (laughs) So then Dave starts frantically calling places like a matter of of hours from dinner on Mother's Day. Hours before Linda and Nora are like, for seven people. You know what might be great is Popeye's. Oh, we were going to get Popeye's. We're all excited about Popeye's. We should have gotten Popeye's. That's how desperate we were. You liked the dinner we got though. Everything to every, I mean, listen, and this is what I was one. The one thing about our family, and I think it's just because of like the origins of it and like what we've been through, is that we're very good at making do. You know, we're we're we we really are good at at keeping it moving, and um and 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 eventually by even by the end of the night, if we're just all like cracking up, laying on the floor like 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 crazy people playing a game of Uno, but like losing it. We just were able to just kind of laugh at the absurdity of it all at some point. It might take a while, and there might be a lot of like fights and tears and in between, but you know, I think I think everything works out. We get there, and uh, eventually. And the worse it gets, kind of the funnier it gets in the end too. Right. Like the more, <laughs> the worse it, humor. It, humor is very important. Totally, and we and we we wind up surviving, and I think you know. Um, when I think about the 300th episode and I think about Susan's third birthday, mm. you know, it just makes me realize how long Chris has been gone. Right. And because it was three years ago, we moved into this house, you know, yeah. like this week. And Chris was still alive then. Yeah. You know, I remember calling him when I was leaving. I remember recording here with him when right. my house had right. no furniture. I remember calling him from the hospital when Susan was born. I remember, you know, it's just... It's amazing how much time has passed since then. And 
obviously the show will always be connected to him, okay. you know, and um, he's not, and and it it makes me like I'm so joyful that we're at the 300th episode that the 300th episode means anything to anybody mm-hmm. that the community exists and it's strong, but it just sucks so bad that um he can't be a part right. of it, you know. Right. So like that's just a bittersweet piece of it for sure. me and it will always be that um but i am incredible and, and like i always look like I, I didn't know what to do for the 300th episode like i was thinking of so many you know different ideas and most of them were the same idea that we've done over right. and over well, you're again very sentimental right and you feel like you need to do tributes and you know you want to do you know you know, and it's and it's a beautiful thing, and of course, always paying respects to Chris, and and, and we want to remember him at these big moments. But I think what's cool, and you'll share, but what's cool about this episode is it's so different, and um, you're just you're taking a different angle with um, a really fucking cool guest. Well, it was <laughs> it like was a kind of a different guest for Dopey, but well, that's the thing. Like I, I the show was created, you know. Number one reason the show was created was for me and Chris to have a good time. Number one reason was to laugh and tell fucked up stories and make an entertaining show. Number one reason. And then, you know, community was born and the idea of the show being able to help people was born. And that's awesome. Like, I love that people got help. But I wanted the show to be entertaining uh, more than any other reason, any other thing. Like, so like, and I've been like looking for guests that are different. And uh, and Nick Flynn, you know, Nick Flynn, mm-hmm. the writer, he's my friend, he's a poet. He's like, have you heard of this guy, Patrick Radden Keefe? And I'm like, no, but I had heard of him. I just forgot about him. And it turns out he's everywhere. <laughs> Patrick Radden Keefe uh, is a, a investigative journalist for The New Yorker. Mm-hmm. And uh, he wrote a really, really, really interesting article about the Sackler family years ago. And um, and I go, I don't care about the Sacklers. Is what I said to Nick Flynn. I don't care about that. Right. And he goes, How could you not care about that? And I was like, I never did oxycotton. I don't. Care. And and Sam's like, You don't care because you don't watch the news. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Maybe. And um, and he's like, Well, he just wrote the best selling, uh, a best selling, you know, nonfiction, Empire of Pain. All about the history of the Sacklers. You really should think about getting right, him on. Right. And I was like, well, you know, like Courtney Love's not coming. Maybe I'll I'll write his publicist, whatever. Mm-hmm. So I wrote his publicist, and his publicist was like, yeah, um, he'll come on. And I was like, okay. And that was two weeks ago, you right. know. And and I was like, well, I guess I need the book. I was like, dude, can you send me the book? The book is fucking. Th- yeah, it's, it's like six inches thick. It's heavy duty reading, you know. And I was like. I'm not going to be able to read this book in two weeks. I was like, it's time to listen to Audible. And mm-hmm. I order the book on Audible. And then I was like, at, at normal speed, it would have taken 16 hours. That's his. It Was that his voice doing it? Because yeah. he actually has a really nice voice. He has an amazing He's a voice. Good reading, he has a great voice. Yeah. But I listened to it at 1.3 times Well, do you fast. remember when I came downstairs yeah. for breakfast? And I'm like, <laughs> not a morning person. So oh, really? I'm like, are you being sarcastic? Yes. Like, so I, I, listen, coming downstairs in the morning to Dave is a really intense experience. How do you figure? Because he ha- usually he has Howard blasting and he's doing push-ups, <laughs> which is like, 
interesting. And it's just, and, and like the lights are on, and like the Howard's on, like volume 10, and he's, you know, it's his coffee, he's running around, the house is like in total, like full blast. It's happening. It's just like, Things wow. Are being and that starts from about six o'clock on. Oh, he's doing the dishes, the dishwasher's on. I mean, it's like his whole, like the house is like humming. <laughs> it's like <laughs> really hardcore energy. And um, that's just not. That's like my prime time right then. And that's just not me. Like I don't want to be touched. I don't want to be looked at. It's wonderful. I don't want to be acknowledged. Um, I want quiet. So you want you want us to be left alone, and then if I leave you alone, you want attention. I well, that's 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 how I am in general. Yes, in the morning, I I'm fine being left alone. So um, so during the the this book phase. I'd come downstairs, and actually, he had such a nice. His voice was actually pretty nice and soothing, and I love these kind of books. So I was kind of like, "Ooh, I would kind of listen a little bit." But um, Dave was playing it too fast, so I'm like, <laughs> "Like, right? What was it on a on a little bit of a, you?" Could it was do on one point three. So I'm like, "What's wrong with the guy reading your? What, what are you listening to? Like, it was just it just sounded off." Um, I just, just wanted speedy. to. Get, I wanted to get it. I done. guess your brain gets adjusted to the faster-paced reader. Like yeah. when you do that on Audible, like I, I know people that do that, but it just sounded weird. I to listened me. to another book at like two two times speed, oh my which gosh. was just like fucking insanity. But this book, and 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 also crazily enough, Dopey Nation. I didn't realize it, but this week on HBO, this documentary came out called Crime of the Century. This guy. Uh, I think Alex Gibney is his name. He's a very famous documentary filmmaker. And uh, the movie is basically the same work as the book, or at least as much of the movie as I watched. And Patrick Radden Keefe is all over it. Yeah, he's like half, he's like a half narrator in it. And um, so like the, the synergy, or as Chris would like to say, the synchronicity of that being this week and like I was just like, let's make that the three hundredth episode because yeah. it's such like the history of of uh, pharmaceuticals and 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 pharmaceutical addiction and mm-hmm. you know and this book like holy shit I found it just so relaxing I think this guy might be like the greatest writer I yeah. ever read yeah he's so good um, and and just you know as people would hear in the interview he's so kind he's a great he's. He's a good sort. He's a good... Right. So it's like a per- the perfect... It's like the perfect combination of good. But before we get to the interview, I want to ask you a question, Linda. Okay. What interferes with your happiness? What? Is there something preventing you from achieving your goals? Because BetterHelp will assess <laughs> your need and match you with your own professional... Is this a commercial? Yes. Match you with your own professional therapist. You can connect in a safe and private online environment. It is so convenient. You can start communicating in under 24 hours. And it's not self-help. It is professional counseling. And these, and these therapists can really do a lot for you. They can help you out with depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping problems, trauma, Anger, Lynn. Ooh. Sleeping in anger. Sign me up. That's right up, right up your alley. <laughs> it really is. It's affordable, confidential, and um, there are so many people that have been using BetterHelp that they're recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. And I know they've been coming after you, Lynn, right? Didn't you have a BetterHelp offer at one point? 
I, I listen. BetterHelp is all over the place these days. It's good stuff. I want you guys to start living a happier life today. Don't you think that they could get something out of using BetterHelp.com? Don't you think anybody can get something out of this kind of therapy? I, I always look at it like this. Whenever you go to the gym, do you ever leave saying, I feel worse? I, I feel the same way about therapy. You're not going to meet with a therapist and say you feel worse. You're only going to feel better. Awesome. As a listener of Dopey, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com slash dopeypodcast. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's better, H-E-L-P dot com slash dopeypodcast. And now we're going to play, are you impressed with the commercial? That was interesting being involved in the commercial. You didn't even see it coming. I'm a, well, I'm a therapist, so I'm like, uh, yeah. You, you support therapy. I su- I'm so for it, 100%. I feel like you're mostly impressed out of every aspect of Dopey, the way I read the advertising, right? Yeah, I mean, I do fast forward it when I'm listening to the show. You do? <laughs> you skip the ads? Do you? Is you that ever... oh, most, pe- most people? Uh... I don't know. Dopey, Pot, Dopey Nation, do you guys listen to the ads or do you skip the ads? <laughs> Write an email. Uh-oh. Send an email to dopeypodcast at gmail.com. And but without further ado, Linda thinks this is the best interview I ever did in the history of I the do. show. I 100% do. Patrick Radden Keith. And you might ask why for the, this is the 300th episode, 300th episode of Dopey. And for the 300th episode, maybe you would expect some terrible drug addict on the show. No, that's not what we're doing. We have this incredible journalist. I think you're the greatest double threat since maybe Chris Christopherson or Janet Jackson. Because not only are you an incredible investigative journalist and writer, but you also have one of the greatest podcasts I think I've ever heard. His name is Patrick Radden Keefe. He wrote the most important book about the Sacklers, Empire of Pain. Welcome to the show. It's so great to be with you. What do you think about being the, the guest for the 300th episode of Dopey? That's some serious That's pretty business. pretty cool. Yes. That's, uh, you know, uh, many, many have tried, but, uh, but, but only one was chosen. Absolutely. And um, I know you had a lot of uh, interest in the world of cartels, uh, you know, El Chapo, all this stuff, and then the Sacklers, like, why did... You're not a drug addict, right? I'm not. So how did... Why did this world speak to you? I've just always been... I've been, always been very, very interested in um, the role of drugs in our society. And um, initially, I was really most interested in, uh, in illegal drugs. Um, I did a lot of writing about the Mexican drug cartels, I spent a lot of time um, talking to drug agents, but also drug traffickers. Um, you know, I, I was really interested in drug cartels as businesses. Like, I wrote, I wrote a big story, a cover story for the New York Times Magazine in 2012. It's funny to think back about about Chapo Guzman and the Sinaloa cartel. This is how long ago this was. I had to explain to them who Chapo Guzman was. I said, "There's this guy." And they, they said they'd never heard of him. And what I was saying is, you know, he, he's this, he's um, an awful human being responsible for tens of thousands of deaths, but, but a pretty amazing entrepreneur. And I was trying to, uh, my gloss on that piece was it was like a Harvard Business School case study of a Mexican drug cartel. Um, and I did, I kept writing about, about him and his organization. And then um, I did a big piece for the New Yorker about the, uh, 
the pot economy in, in Washington State about the legalization of cannabis. It's just super interesting to me, the idea that you had this decades-old, pretty mature, illegal economy, like black market economy. And then the stroke of a pen, the state says, we're going to tax and regulate it and make it legit. Like, what does that look like? What, you know, how do you overnight take it, uh, an underground economy and, and um, make it legal? So I was just always interested in those kinds of um, – those types of questions about, what you know, what's – What's FDA regulated and 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 taxed, um, and what's not, and how do we make those decisions as a society, and what are the consequences for people, uh, you know, whether it's whether it's users or um, traffickers or anyone in between? It's so interesting because our show is always about. I mean, ninety nine percent of our show is about the addict, the user, the person who is is, and you're you're on the business side of it. Yeah. But as you've learned about the business side of it, the humanity of the of the user rises, right? Um, and when you uh, when you're when you're studying Chapo and you're investigating Chapo, because you're a really like this book. Um, I listened to your book, Walking Around New York. I work at Katz's Deli, and I had meetings in oh, book. Yeah, I work cool. at Katz's, so I, you have a pastrami sure. sandwich in your future if you play your if you play your cards right. Um, <laughs> And I'm walking around the city, and like one of the things about the book that really lured me in is how New York it is. You know, the yeah. story the story of Arthur Sackler, I mean, except for everything he did, reminds me of my dad's story. My dad grew up in Queens with two brothers, you know, with no money. You know, the yeah. Sacklers yeah. had a little bit more money than my family did in the beginning, like a defunct grocery store, but Arthur going to Erasmus and like the New Yorkness of the book really like drew me in. And I didn't even expect to care because I was a heroin addict and I didn't think that it, the, the story of Oxycontin was even going to interest me, but it was the New Yorkness that brought me into it. And um, I think the amount of overachieving that Arthur Sackler did was just, it was it was incomprehensible to me. Like I struggle working at a deli and making a podcast. And Arthur Sackler was an MD and got into ad and ran an advertising agency. Right. Yeah. And while he was an MD, he worked at Creedmoor and he was doing electroshock and lobotomies. Now this is a really interesting question. I thought, which is he hated the suffering he saw in his patients. So you almost painted him as heroic in that one moment, right? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I don't, you know, so a few things, right. I, I, the Sacklers have been very reviled and I think rightly reviled in, you know, as, um, uh, in terms of their role in the opioid crisis, but I don't, as a writer, I spent two years working on this book and, and I actually started initially, I wrote an article for the New Yorker about Sacklers that was back in 2017. So if I'm going to spend this much time thinking about people, and um, writing about them. And this would go for, like, real, you know, this would go for Chapa Guzman as well. Um, I don't, I'm not very interested in the, in the kind of caricature of the mustache twirling villain. I, I want to understand why people do the things they do and try and see them as human beings. And that's not to say that I'm not pretty tough on them. You know, I think probably if you've read the book, you know that I am. Um, but part of what I wanted to try and do just because I think it's, it's, it's both, it makes for a more interesting story, but also it's just honest. It captured that there was some idealism here. This wasn't just greed, you know, there was idealism. And so you have this moment in the, in the, um, 
in the 40s and 50s when Arthur Sackler and his two brothers, Mortimer and Raymond, you know, they grew up in the Depression in Brooklyn. They're all doctors, and they, they're working at this crazy uh, asylum in Queens. Um, there's 6,000 beds. It was supposed to be for 4,000 people, but it, but it was incredibly overcrowded. And it's, it's like an industrial insane asylum. And they had this treatment, electroshock treatment, which for whatever reason, it worked with some of the patients, but these brothers, they find it really demoralizing. And, and so for them, there's this moment where they say, there has to be a better way. There has to be a better way. There has to be a pill for this. And so there's this, I think, great idealism at the, at the outset of this family story, which is, um, you know, these brothers feeling like, uh, eventually there will be a pill for everything better living through chemistry basically. And that kind of launches them into the pharmaceutical business. It's interesting because at that point in capitalist society in America, was it, I mean like capitalism actually made for good things to happen, great innovations. It wasn't like maximum greed right at the top. So the question is, do you think in the first place, Arthur married the greed with the in, the uh, ingenuity, or do you think it was more the idealism and the greed followed? Oh, man, that's a great question. And I don't really know. I mean, I, I, I sort of think it was both. I think there was a sense. My whole thing with, with, in terms of Arthur, if you look at this guy's life, his biography, and I should say he dies in 87. He dies before the introduction of OxyContin, but I wanted to devote the first third of the story to him because I think so much of what came later you can see the seeds of it in Arthur's life. And he was just a walking conflict of interest, basically. Um, he had this thing. It's funny. You, you can even see an example of this with his, you know, he ends up with these three different wives and there's a little overlap and he's kind of juggling the women in his life. And he was just one of those people. And, and, and you probably know people like this. I know people like this, but, but to a lesser degree, who anytime it's an either or choice, they say, and both, I'll, I'll do both. Um, and he kept doing that. And so for him, what that meant was he's a physician, but he also gets into medical advertising and he also has a pharmaceutical company and he's also got a newspaper that's geared to doctors. And he sort of thought for him, this is all like a benevolent cycle. Everything helps everything else. It just so happened he's getting richer and richer and richer along the way. And I think it probably started as idealism, and then I do think the greed starts to play into it. Totally. It's, it's, I love that because it also reminds me of one of the things when I was reading the book I kept thinking about was the parallel between the Sackler brothers and addicts. They wanted everything, and they wanted more. You know, and it's like when you even describe that, that he wanted, you know, he didn't want to choose steak or fish. He, yeah, give me both. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. like it reminds me of the classic addict. And um, I also just love the history of, of the pharmacopoeia or whatever you call it. Like, so he hated giving ECT. So he, he, he had he worked for the company that synthesized Thorazine and he marketed it. What was Arthur's relationship with Thorazine in the first place? So he didn't, uh, so far as I can tell, he didn't have anything to do with Thorazine, but Thorazine was kind of the inspiration. Um, it was sort of delivered on the, you know, he, he had had this notion, right, that eventually you're going to have, there's going to be a drug that you can give people and the asylums will empty out. 
And he had that conjecture, and then Thorazine comes along, and it happened. The thing that's interesting is, um, it's fascinating you raise that point about the the kind of addict's personality. Um, I hadn't really thought of it in those terms, but it's but th- there is this quality with Arthur. I mean, I'll give you another example where he you know he becomes an art collector, and he's just madly collecting art. And at first, each individual object is really exciting and gives him great pleasure, but then eventually, it's like he's kind of trying to chase that first thrill that he had when he, you know, totally. when he collected years before. And he, and so it becomes kind of crazy. It becomes this mania where eventually he's got his whole house is full of boxes of stuff that he's bought at auction. And in some cases he doesn't even open it because once he's like, once he's consummated the transaction, the thrill is gone. He's looking for the next thing. The next high. Um, I forgot about that. Cause you yeah. described, you describe when he goes downstairs in the basement to meet yeah, with that yeah, guy. Yeah. It's like buying drugs. It's straight yeah, up like right. I didn't even think of that until this moment. That's funny. Um, I hadn't thought of it either, but you're right. Isn't that you're so funny? Right. Oh my god, it is. Um, but these are, I mean, these are. Look, these are, these are human. I'm sure you. I'm sure you. You talk about this stuff a lot, right? But but there are, um, you know, these are human tendencies, right? I mean, people, whether people are addicted to substances or not, or addicted to something else. Um, uh, they're so prevalent and, and you definitely see it uh, with Arthur. So what I was going to say is with, with Thorazine. So Thorazine was, was what was known as a major tranquilizer. The idea being you're psychotic. Um, you're going through really severe episodes and Thorazine was kind of a heavy duty solution. What Arthur did was working for Roche. Uh, they developed what they called minor tranquilizers. So the idea is same principle, but, this isn't for people who have a severe mental condition. It's for people who are just a little anxious and they develop first Librium. And then uh, shortly after that Valium that become these huge blockbuster drugs. And um, I think that that pivot from the idea of the major tranquilizer, which there's a pretty small market for, um, because it's it's such a it's such a major solution to what's perceived as a major problem, you can see the way in which if you're in the pharma business, you're thinking, okay, but what if we had a milder version of this that we could pitch to everyone? And Arthur was intimately involved in in that pivot and got very 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 rich uh, marketing Valium that way. And that could have been where he turned the corner from being idealistic to seeing the greed and to seeing how many jade statues he could buy and how many enclaves he might be able to have. But I also love at that point the, like you, you compare him to Don Draper and I love Don Draper. Like he's one of my favorite characters ever. And, uh, and Arthur Sackler as this, uh, pharmacological Don Draper figuring out how to push these pills onto, um, doctors. So the doctors get, the the customers it's like it's pretty much it's very similar to the way the biggest drug smugglers gave their drugs to the corner people right right like they gave it to the distributors or whatever the distributors yeah yeah it's funny i thought about that i um yeah um i was interviewing a god i don't even know who it was at one point when i was doing my sinaloa reporting one of the things that was really fascinating to me is that they're very vertically integrated um, you know, they, they used to say like, you know, from the farm to the arm. Um, and, uh, who said that? But, who said from the farm to the arm? It's like an expression that people would sometimes use to That's describe, great. you know, that they're, they're like growing, growing the poppies and then all the way through. But the truth is 
that they don't the big Mexican drug cartels will get as far as wholesalers like wholesalers in Chicago. Right. And they don't actually want any involvement in the like street level dealing. And I remember talking to somebody about this and they were like, they were like, yeah, it's, it's way better business to, to be like a liquor wholesaler than it is to own a bar. Like you don't, you don't want to own a bar, you know, you don't want to be out there kind of on the coal face um, interacting with the clientele. And, it, and in, you know, the analogy here with, with the Sacklers would be that um, obviously there's a lot of marketing of pharmaceuticals to consumers in this country. You turn on TV any night, uh, you get barraged with ads. But, but the big innovation that Arthur Sackler had, and then you see this later with OxyContin, was yeah, the consumer, you know, if you can get to the consumer, that's great. What you really want is the doctor, is the physician. These are the people writing the prescriptions. Um, that's your audience. And so, and, and, you know, these are, these are, they're pretty sophisticated, right? So you need to be sophisticated in trying to change their minds about what they prescribe and how much of it they prescribe. Totally. And, and one other thing that I thought you described really, really well, because Arthur was a doctor, he sort of had, he, he painted this picture that doctors were more than humans, right? That doctors were unflappable, uncorruptible. And I really love the way you kind of tap that because that was the whole strategy the whole way through. Like they were, you know, immune to immoralness, right? Yeah. I mean, I love, I love that you brought that up because I think about this all the time with Arthur. This is like the fundamental paradox of Arthur Sackler. Arthur thought that physicians, as you said, that they were, more, you know, they were almost godlike, kind of priest-like figures in society. All they're thinking about is the interest of the patient. Um, they, you know, th they would never be subject to any undue influence or any of that stuff. And so he would, even when he talked about advertising, he'd be like, physicians are not going to be swayed by ad. Like, they're doctors. But, but the guy who's saying this, literally owned an advertising agency that was geared towards advertising to doctors. And so that to me is kind of a, a pretty evident example of the conflict of interest there that he's claiming that they can't be swayed. Um, and yet he's swaying them, you know, and yet he's, one, swaying them right. and he's in the business of swaying them. And in fact, if they couldn't be swayed, he, you know, it would be, his business would be kind of a dud. Like right? why did he invent direct mail and the whole strategy of, of buying the steak for the doctor and, and exactly. also just putting the, the drug on the, on the pen, you know, which he came up yes. with that in high school. Right. Like, yes. it's like yeah. the greatest yeah. Jewish tchotchke bullshit thing ever. I love that. <laughs> like, and, and I didn't even see where that was coming from. In high school, he puts a business school on the rulers for the high school. On the back of a ruler. And yeah. then you think of all these bullshit items that doctors are getting to sway them. And the fact that it works shows that doctors are These just like little else. free things that they leave behind. Yeah. I mean, and I think the big, the big thing is like you just said that it works. I mean, I, you know, I've talked to doctors. I talked to doctors when I was working on the book, doctors who I know, and they would say, Oh, you know, of course the pharma companies, they're always putting all this pressure on us, what have you, but I would never be swayed. You know, like I'm not, you can buy me a steak dinner. That's not going to change the way I, I, uh, prescribe. you know, I prescribe to my patients. And, um, one of the statistics in the book that still blows my mind is for a while there, Purdue Pharma was spending $9 million a year just to buy food for doctors. It was like a line item. And you better believe that when they looked at their books, they know they're getting a return on investment on every dollar they spend on that stuff. They wouldn't be spending $9 million a year doing it if they couldn't look and say, well, we've actually tracked this and they track 
you know, what doctors prescribe incredibly closely and see that those prescriptions go up. It's interesting, though, because the one thing, because they were incredibly, you know, detail-oriented in how the money worked and what they invested in and what they got back, except when it came to to their philanthropy, because they can spend billions of dollars on philanthropy you know, like one of the greatest points also in the book was the father, the 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 what's he, what do you call Isaac it? Sackler. Isaac yeah. Sackler, who didn't have much money, who failed at, at his grocery store, who had to be supported by uh, Arthur, uh, said, "The only thing I can give you is a good name. You can yeah. lose a fortune, you can get it back, but you can't get back a good name after you've lost it." So they realized they didn't care about the financial return on the philanthropy. Was it spiritual or was it ego-driven, all of their worldwide philanthropy? So, I mean, the first thing I would say is there are some people who suggest that with the Sacklers, they, it was a kind of penance. And I don't believe that because the truth is that they don't think they have anything to apologize for. Um, I think some of it was ego. I think it was kind of branding. I mean, this is a family that really what they're, what they're good at is marketing. And Isaac Sackler, you're absolutely right. At the height of the depression, he says that to his sons, the most important thing is a good family name. And it's not long after that, that they start, as soon as they start making money, they start putting the Sackler name on things. It starts small, starts at Columbia. I went through all these files where they're making gifts, but they want everything to say Sackler this and Sackler that, and they've got these very elaborate agreements. Anytime you show this, it has to say it's from the Sackler collection. You know, if you're in New York, go to the Sackler wing at the Met. I mean, it it, it goes on and on and on. The Sackler name's all over the place. I I think that that was a kind of a, a pride thing and sort of investing in the name and the name being a, again, kind of a brand more than anything else. Um, and in terms of the return on investment, I mean, it worked. You know, when I started writing about the Sacklers in 2017, I, I didn't break the news that the family got their money from OxyContin. That was out there in the world, but it, it just hadn't caught up with them. And so it was kind of amazing to me because in 2017 – I mean, now it's very, very different. In 2021, it's a different world. They're kind of in a world of hurt in terms of their reputation. But in 2017, the Sackler name was, was you know, it was considered pretty uh, pretty blue chip. Totally. I mean, they've lost their good name, which is, which is really one of the greatest points of the book. I have a question, though. So we're in the 60s, right? And Valium is becoming ubiquitous. Everyone's taking Valium. And um, I think you're wrong, though, about the Rolling Stones. I think Mother's Little Helper is about amphetamines. I don't think it's about Valium. Mm -mm, It's Valium. Are you sure? Yeah, positive. How come I was always under the impression that it was speed? Because I I guess Valium's going to make a mother worry less but not get more done, right? Yes. Okay. Um, I was always under the impression it was like like ephedrine or like some kind of amphetamine. I don't know. No, no, no. Okay, okay. Um, we got to get Mick Jagger on. We got to get Mick Jagger on the line. I always did, when I did Valiums, they were blue, but I would do ten milligram Valiums. It doesn't matter. Uh-huh. It doesn't matter. We should we should try. You know, I had to. I couldn't use the. This is so amazing to me. So I used an epigram for the book from that song in the U.S. and for the U.K. version, I couldn't use it because you have to. Like under U.S. law, you can do fair use. Basically, it's I didn't have to pay to use the line. 
but in the UK, there's no such legal concept. So I would have had to I, it was something I would have had to pay something like two grand if I wanted to use you know, my my eight word quote. From, Doctor, please some more of these. Right? Yeah, exactly. Such a good tune, though. Such a fucking great line and such a good song. So my question is, as the world gets addicted to Valium. You know, and I was a, a very heavy benzodiazepine addict. Like, and when I, I mean, I was more into clonopins and Xanax because that's what was on the street more than Valium. And when I would stop taking them, I had many seizures. Like, I, I personally had, you know, almost 10 seizures where I would fall mm. out in weird, terrible spots. And in the beginning, they kind of marketed Valium uh, as though it was, there was no problem. You know what I mean? But when did they start learning that there might be a problem? It didn't take too long um, with, with Valium. I mean, Roche, Roche knew, and they same with Librium, you know, that the drugs were habit forming, that that people were kind of getting into these these like cycles of dependency. Um, they knew, <coughs> but they kind of did their best to suppress that. Um, and what's interesting, again, to the, the point I was making earlier about how in the Arthur Sackler years you see the kind of prologue for everything that comes later with OxyContin. So what happened was that they, the response by, by Roche, by Arthur Sackler, um, and by the makers of other, um, other mi minor tranquilizers was they would say, Oh, it's the people that are the problem. Mm. You know, that there are, that these people are just, uh, they're reckless. They're irresponsible. There's nothing in the drug itself. Um, that should raise any questions. And so that's, you know, is the kind of, they, they sort of said, look, some people have addictive personalities. Um, there's a guy, he wasn't from Roche. There's a guy that I quote in the book who was the, he was an executive um, at another, at another company that made a different minor tranquilizer, Milltown. And, um, you know, he, he, he said, he said, you know, he's like, look, some people just have addictive personalities. Like, you know, I heard about somebody who, who got addicted to cola drinks, you know, and it's just this idea <laughs> of, um, um, that it's totally on the person and uh, and not. And again, I'm not saying I'm not saying that the um, particularly having come out of the background that I have with the reporting, I, I'm not a prohibitionist, so I'm not suggesting that any of these drugs shouldn't be made or sold. Uh, for me, the issue is just kind of honesty in, in marketing. Oh. Um, no, I hear you. I mean, it's like uh, their addict bashing or their or their need to be innocent, you know what I mean, was, was insanity to me. But, like, with a benzo, it seemed different than with the opiate, you know. But Arthur never took responsibility for Valium having any sort of effect on the population. And thank God the effect of Valium wasn't the kind of effect that OxyContin had, though, right? Yeah, that's true. I mean, the right. So, so the legacy of Valium is not nearly as as disastrous. Um, and the, um, I mean, the other thing, and this is, I, I actually think, pretty significant, is that, and we can talk about this when we, when we get to OxyContin, but I, in the in in big pharma, if you're first, it counts for a lot, and. Librium and Valium were not the first minor tranquilizer. It was really Milltown that kind of changed the game. That was the first one out of the gate. That changed the way those drugs were prescribed and consumed. And then drafting on that, you get Librium and Valium. So on the one hand, Arthur was very innovative in terms of how he markets these drugs. On the other hand, you know, it didn't change the game in, in, in quite the same way that OxyContin does. Where with OxyContin, you get this very deliberate strategy – that says 
there's a certain class of drugs that American doctors are not prescribing widely. Um, and they're not, you know, they're prescribing them for severe pain, but not moderate pain. We're going to change that. And um, that, that to me is, is a very different thing. And the, other, the only other thing I would say on Arthur Sackler is that he, what he does, which is so interesting, is you're right. He never kind of owns the fact that there might have been any, you know, problem, um, any problem at all with, with Valium and Librium. But he also just kind of deletes this line from his resume. Like there's this strange thing where he's – by the time he dies, he's worth hundreds of millions of dollars, and a big bulk of that comes from his success marketing these two – you know, these drugs that at the time were the biggest successes, financial successes in the history of the pharmaceutical business. Um, but he – you know, I've seen the, that he would kind of give his professional biographies and his resumes around and so forth, and he would just leave out altogether the fact that he had played this role or that he had a medical advertising business. So it's one of those funny things where he never apologized for it, but but he also clearly knew well enough to know that you know this maybe wasn't the look that he was after. Right. He wanted to be this this generous philanthropist who was a doctor and a writer, but he didn't want to be the person that came up with the strategy for everyone to be strung out on Valium. You know, and right it's exactly. funny because now if you go to, if you go to detox with a, a benzo problem or an alcohol problem, the first thing they give you is Librium, you know, to avoid seizures. You know, I hated yeah. Librium. I, I was a hardcore benzo heroin addict. And whenever I would go to detox, like the worst detox is the detox where they said all you're going to get is Librium. Like that's the detox you don't want. Because I always thought Librium was not a pleasant feeling. Valium I really liked. Librium uh-huh. I didn't like so much. But That's so funny. It's great to hear you say that because I, you know, the perspective that I come at this from, which is the supply side perspective, is you know, Arthur Sackler, Librium and Valium seem so similar to Roche. That they were like, God, how are we going to differentiate these things so the consumers think we're not just selling the same thing? Yeah, my experience where they were not not even possible different. to compare them. It's like riding yeah. around in like a nice car or riding on a horse. You know what I mean? Like that's that's the feeling, the difference. But that's where we get to um, the crazy oxycotton thing. And the first thing with the oxycotton thing was it Raymond or was it Richard or was it the two of them together? So Arthur dies in 1987. His uh, his brothers are still alive, Mortimer and Raymond. Also, and, also, what about the tongue teen? Or uh, what, yeah. you know, it's like, the only place I had ever heard that is in The Simpsons, where Mr. Burns made the tongue teen with his, uh, his army buddies. Do you remember that? And they, 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 no, that's too funny, really. They, they go to Nazi Germany, they steal all of the art from the Nazis, and create a, what's it called? What's the word? A tontine. A tontine. And, and the last two surviving members from the troupe are Mr. Burns and Grandpa Simpson. And, uh, and Mr. Burns is trying to kill Grandpa to get the entire fortune of that Nazi painting. Amazing. I can't believe you didn't so, know about that. I didn't know that. And what's funny is my kids literally probably right now as we're talking. Are watching my kids episode. For, throughout episode. Well, they're watching their way through all like you know, all, all 5,000 episodes or whatever it is of The Simpsons. Uh, I don't think they've hit that one yet, but I'll um, we'll make a point of seeking it out. It's hilarious. It is hilarious. Um, so, yeah, so they – so Mortimer and Raymond uh, control the company, um, and Richard is Raymond's son. And so you do have this period in the 1990s when Mortimer and Raymond are still officially 
running the show, but Richard is this, you know, he's kind of the heir apparent and he was very much at the forefront of their push into pain medicine. And this was true, not just with Oxycontin, but an earlier drug they had, this morphine drug called MS Cotton. Now, do you think that Richard saw what Arthur had done and said, I want to copy what he did? He did it with tranquilizers, creating a minor tranquilizer that could be ubiquitous among middle-class Americans. Do you think Richard was like, I want to do that with pain medication? I wonder. I mean, I, I wonder how much. I don't know the answer to that question. Um, I do know because I interviewed his college roommate that when Richard was in college, he, he really admired his uncle, Arthur. Um, the I don't know whether he would have looked at what, what Arthur did with Librium and Valium and thought about it in precisely those terms. I mean, it's also the case that, that probably there are many other examples in the pharma business of people trying to do this. But to me, it was very striking that you get Thorazine, which is – you know, nuclear power stuff for a small number of people. And then you get the minor tranquilizers, which are milder for everybody. And you get a very similar thing with, with you know, Purdue initially has this cancer drug called MS Contin, which is a morphine pill. And it's geared primarily to the cancer pain market. And there are these conversations where they're saying the, the patent's going to run out. They're trying to figure out what's going to come next. They're worried about their profits. And they say, what if we came up with another um, another controlled release opioid painkiller, but it's one we position for moderate pain, not just severe pain. And that then, you know, at the time they thought that market was 40, 50 million people in the United States. So that's the prize. And, and it is a very similar pivot to the pivot that you see with Roche decades earlier. Totally. And the MS content was morphine sulfate with the content and the content. I didn't know this as a drug user that I think you I think I learned it from your book that the content in Oxycontin and MS Cotton was the time release coding. That was the exactly which is amazing. And uh, short, short for continuous. Ah, I didn't know that either. Um, I told you about The Simpsons and you explained what content is. So thank you. We're learning things yes, today. Thank yeah. you. Um, now, the question is. Was morphine a generic, and they knew they couldn't keep a patent on it, and that's why they traded down, or they would never have gotten it renewed? I remember the, I remember reading in the book that they had released it without ever taking it to the board, right? Yeah, so there were – I mean, this is the other thing that's kind of funny. There are a lot of shell games that the Sacklers and Purdue have played over the years. One of them is like, you know – it, is the family involved in the company or not? You know, do they have a role or do they not? And when it when it suits them to say, oh yes, it's our company, we're we're you know bound up with it really tightly, they'll say that. And when it suits them to say like you know nothing to do with it at all, they'll say that. Similarly, there's this question of you know is something new and revolutionary, or is it old and has been, has it been around a long time? And so, MS content actually was a was a pretty revolutionary drug, and I think internally they felt that way. But when it came to getting FDA approval, they said, oh, it's just morphine. Morphine's been around forever. And so they didn't apply for FDA approval. They didn't you know, file a new drug application, which you're supposed to. They just started selling it. And the FDA then came and said, ah, but listen, this is different dosages here that you're doing. Um, you're packing a lot of drug into the pill. You do need approval. Um, the, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, if you're looking to make a lot of money – it's a great business because morphine and also oxycodone are not expensive. 
Um, the novelty is that control release mechanism, which means that you can you can have a lot of milligrams of, of pure oxycodone, um, and the idea is it'll it'll filter slowly into the bloodstream. Unlike, for instance, Percodan and Percocet, where it's cut with aspirin or acetaminophen, which means there's just a you know there's a limit to how much uh, you're going to be able to do in terms of dosage strength. Totally, and so many addicts were on. Percodan or Percocet, and somebody would tell them, you can't take that shit because the acetaminophen is going to fuck up your liver. You might right. as well be doing heroin, or you might as well be doing oxy. And they basically packed all that oxycodone with the coating into the Oxycontin, and, and, and then marketed, and this is where it gets really crazy to me, and marketed to, if you have pain, if you have... Uh, What's what's I can't even th- name some afflictions besides cancer that you would it would be appropriate arthritis sports injury high right. school kid with a sports injury right yeah it's fucking like everything total you know ubiquitous is my new word I don't think I knew what it meant until recently I like it. so I say it all the time now um, but it became ubiquitous to everybody but the question is this right you know and this is where it gets really weird to me like I became addicted to heroin in the late nineties okay I grew up in New York City. Uh, I was buying heroin in Brooklyn. I was buying heroin in Manhattan. And I don't think the Oxycontin boom had anything to do with me buying heroin. There had been a heroin epidemic since the 70s in Manhattan and maybe in the 50s as well. Um, Doctors knew the problem with opiates, right? I mean, there was a, a war in China fought over it. Like, everyone knew that opiates caused deathly addiction so how come they turned a blind eye to it they did tell me why well it didn't happen by accident i mean this is and this is the reason i think that today um you know today the the when we talk about the opioid crisis we're talking really about a heroin or fentanyl crisis um but a lot of people would argue and myself among them that it was born the crisis today was born a uh, quarter of a century ago with a prescription pill um, and and it was oxycontin and the way in which this happened was that you're absolutely right doc you know physicians treating people for pain in the United States were very reluctant to prescribe strong opioids because there was the sense that uh, they could potentially be quite addictive um, and so you would you know you would reserve the, this as like a, a very powerful solution um, for cancer pain, <clears throat> end of life care, really extreme situations. And there are these amazing emails. I mean, we have we kind of have the receipts on this. Where inside Purdue, they're talking about how, um, okay, if we want to grow the market, we need to persuade doctors that they have been too cautious about prescribing these drugs. Um, that there's like a, a hysteria about opioids, and as a consequence, lots of people are suffering from undertreated pain. And so they they launched this campaign, and it's a campaign not just to promote OxyContin, the drug, but to change the way in which doctors think about prescribing these drugs. And so, and they kind of there's that's like a it's like a, there's two prongs to it. One is you shouldn't just use this as like the most extreme thing that you do when nothing else works. Their tagline for Oxycontin was the one to start with and the one to stay with. Yeah, that was actually that. their, 
yeah. their line. And they said, so, so they say, you know, you don't graduate to this. This is the first course of therapy. Um, and then the other part of it was, well, how do you overcome the inhibition that the doctors feel? And what the, the, the answer there was they told them, you know what, it's, it's all a myth, actually, about opioids being dangerously addictive. If you're a pain patient and a doctor prescribes it to you and you take it the way the doctor told you to, you won't get addicted. I've interviewed all these former sales reps, and they would say we would the line that they would use is they would say less than one percent of the time you get addicted less than one percent of the time. So that was the push. And if you look at prescribing habits of American doctors, it's it looks one way until about 1996, and then it looks another. And the reason that you get this sudden spike in opioid prescribing is because they were so successful in that marketing campaign. I feel like that's the ultimate shell game, though. You know, I feel like out of all the shell games, that's the craziest one because shouldn't they – I mean, like, you're not – they're not prescribing Dilaudid. They knew Dilaudid would make everybody junkies. You know what I'm saying? They, they're not giving out morphine because they were scared everyone would be addicted. You know, opium is obviously banned. All the old, you know, laudanum and all that shit was banned. And yet here's this pill, and they're, they're implying that it's weaker than morphine. But how could the doctors, you know, these people who are learned doctors, and again, am I, am I doing what Arthur Sackler did? You know, you are. Well, how could they not know? Like, you have all these heroin addicts, you know, all these methadone addicts. You know, like, how could they not see the correlation? I mean, I, I think there's a lot going on. So as a, as a for starters, I would say, um, I think one Part of my learning curve writing this book is that I have an almost childlike tendency to go and see my doctor and say, like, Doc, I'm in your hands. My life is in your hands. Sure. I didn't go to medical school. I don't have a diploma on the right. wall. Um, you, you know, I'm going to tell you how I feel, tell you what my symptoms are. You tell me what I've got. You tell me what to take. And um, you realize that, uh, <laughs> you know, their judgment is not always as state of the art as you might hope. Often they're busy. A lot of the time they didn't know about pain. I mean, you know, in terms of pain and pain treatment, this was not a, a, a big specialty. It wasn't something that people had a lot of training in. A lot of the training they did get came from the, the pharmaceutical industry. And so, and then on top of that, in fairness to the doctors, and I, I've interviewed a lot of doctors who've told me this, you got a patient in pain, right? It's awful. You want to help them. And then suddenly here's the solution and you get these sales reps who come in. So for you, I agree. To me, it feels like a huge con. And what's amazing is I've interviewed these, these sales reps who, you know, some of them are making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. It was, a, it was really like a go-go time in the late 90s, early 2000s when this was happening. They were really aggressively incentivized by the company to just as, you know, as there's a line in my book, sell, sell, sell Oxycontin. That's what they were supposed to be doing. But what's interesting is these sales reps didn't go to medical school. They're not doctors. Right. These are people who, you know, they're often fresh out of college and they're going out there trying to catch a few minutes of time with a busy doctor. And it's kind of it just in terms of the, the art of the con. Amazing. It's pretty amazing, amazing that they can get in there with this, you know, much more experienced doctor and change the way that doctor does business in ways that I think end up having hugely fatal consequences. Yeah, I mean, it's like that's basically the whole thing. It's demystifying the, the, the role of the doctor. And then also that's where the e – I don't like to call anybody evil, but that's where the real evil rolls in on this story. As people turn up dead, as people turn up addicted, as as the numbers get crazy out of control. Like I would – I started going to detoxes 
in like 99, you know, and I, I was on, yeah. on heroin, methadone, uh, from 99 to basically 2008, 2009. Um, and every place I would go, every outpatient, every rehab, you know, the majority of the people are there because of oxys, you know, and it was just, it was, and it was always like people you wouldn't expect. So like as the data rolls back to the Sacklers and to Purdue, like this is another thing where you'd think to have that much money, you know, you're talking about billions, billionaires, like why not diversify? Why not be like, holy shit, the fire is going to get to us. Why don't we get into another business now? Yeah. We've made enough money. Why don't we, like, like, and that's also another thing you said in the book when you talked about uh, Richard Sackler and his hubris, right? It really reminded me of a junkie, you know? Mm. And I feel like in that moment, he could go left or he could go right, and he fucking stayed the course because he wanted all the money. They all did. I mean, this is the craziest thing is that in terms of the Sacklers who actually were involved in the business, I kept thinking there'd be some outlier. There'd be some person who was like, you know what? Fuck it. I quit. I don't want the money. Like, I can't stand by this. Didn't happen. Do you think now, after everything went down, and like, if like Madeline, you know, the filmmaker fucking Mm -hmm. came out and said, I'm with Nan Golden and we're going to fight and I, I renounce my, my, my family, like, she would be like the, the, a legend. Do you think that there's like the family like had a meeting and said, if you, one of you guys, like you guys are out. I wonder. Yeah. I mean, I will say I looked hard for that person. It It was very surprising to me that there was no one in the third generation. Um, and these are these, you know, they're these young people with these kind of hip indie artsy jobs. Um, and I, I really thought that somebody would not even necessarily renounce the the money. You know, it's like James Murdoch gave an interview to the New York Times where he's not giving up the money. He's not disowning his family. But he basically said, I'm really uncomfortable with what's happened uh, with my family's media empire. None of them have even done that. There's not an inch of daylight between them, which is funny because I know behind the scenes, this is not a family that gets along especially well. So it's weird. This is like the one thing where there's kind of common cause is a sense that they haven't done anything wrong. They got nothing to apologize for. Solidarity. And like, but the misery is palpable. And it's like, you know, the, the opioid epidemic, uh, I mean, like my opioid epidemic, my, my drug addiction, like I, I, I don't, I think I did Oxycontin a couple times. I don't think it impressed me. I always wanted heroin. Mm. Uh, I always had access to heroin either in New York or LA. Um, but the numbers would not be what they are without it. I just had a kid on the, or an adult now, but a guy on the show last week who talked about, you know, getting strung out on Oxy, going on fish tour, Oxy being everywhere on fish tour, and then, like, what he would have to do when they changed the the shell to the gummy bear, that he'd be freezing the fucking Oxy, smashing it with a hammer, and the whole whole night. Now, well, there's a, there's a crazy, I mean, one of the craziest, so, so they, yeah, so they, for, for listeners who don't know, in 2010, the company reformulates the pill to make it harder to crush. And ironically enough, they do this just as the patent, the original patents are supposed to be running out. So they renew the patent. So you tell me whether that timing uh, smells fishy to you. But what is amazing is there's this statistic that just blows my mind that I found as I was working on the book, which is when they do this, the reformulation in 2010, make the pill harder to abuse. Sales of Oxy-80s, which at the time was the biggest uh, pill available on the market, 
plummet 25% nationwide. Because you can't use them the way they wanted to anymore. Right, but I'm saying, I mean, for, for me, the crazy thing is, remember, this is a company and a family that have been vilifying people who are addicted to the drug and, abu- and abusing the drug. How weird that they, they that they're, that they when this happens, they're basically get it's very hard to argue with that. It's unambiguous evidence that 25% of their profits from the biggest dose came from people who are addicted and abusing the drug, right? I mean, that, that's, that's where the, it, it accounts for their bottom line. But like what, I mean, do you think it's just denial? I mean, like if we go by this idea that these, like addict qualities, right? I see addict qualities in these people. Is that the denial piece? Or maybe, you know what I mean? Like, I I know you don't have much time and I have, I have two more questions and one is totally unrelated. Um, First question is in the end, you know, there, there are two lawsuits, there's two and they went bankrupt, right? And they, they, the Sacklers fucking take $10 billion out of Purdue, and they're like, we're going to live our life, and Purdue is going to be bankrupt. What, what's going to happen now? Like, what, is, what do you see happening? So I, you have this situation in which the, the company's bankruptcy, uh, the family took $10 billion out, and it's kind of sitting pretty on the sidelines. Um, there are half of the states, or pretty much every state, wants to sue Purdue, half of the states want to, are suing the Sacklers. Um, but it looks like the bankruptcy judge is going to kind of give them a get-out-of-jail-free card, that they will put up some amount of money. It'll probably be, they've, they've offered four and a quarter billion dollars, which on the one hand is a huge amount of money. Um, but it's a small amount of money when you think about the cost of the opioid crisis. It's a drop in the bucket in terms of what the costs are. Um, and it's a small amount of money in terms of what they've made, right? Like if we're just looking at the $10 billion that they took out over the course of a decade or so, it's 40 cents on the dollar. Uh, so they're proposing they get to keep the rest of the money. They admit no wrongdoing and that they then get protected from any future lawsuits. So they don't have to worry about future lawsuits. The states won't be able to sue them and what have you. There is a bill in Congress right now called the Sackler Act. And if it were to pass between now and August, that would mean that the judge – the bankruptcy judge couldn't give them that get-out-of-jail-free card. So if that happens, it's all bets are off. They could get sued by the states. It could get pretty interesting. But that's justice. Um, that's justice in this situation. You know what I mean? Like the fact that they could pick their own bankruptcy judge who could give them a get-out-of-jail-free card. It's also It all reminds me of, of Trump a little bit. Like, like if Trump had said, racism is bad, wear a mask, he'd probably still be president. You know what I'm saying? If if yeah. if the Sackler said, "Holy shit, we fucked up. I we want to put half of our fortune into education, rehab, Hold Narcan." Up. They save their name. They they, yeah. they 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 get another chance, and yet they're yeah. so fucking addicted to themselves. They they right. refuse to do it. It's it's pretty crazy. No, I completely agree. And there were and the thing is, I know that there were advisors and various people telling telling them to do that. You know, ten years ago, I mean, years and years ago, people were saying, um, you know, pretend that you give a shit. Exactly. Right? Like if, you, if you do that, it, it'll it'll really help. Um, take some of the money that you're giving to art museums and and devote it to to treatment. Right. Right. Um, they very stubbornly said no again and again. They could set up the greatest free treatment in the history of the world, and that would be a really great gesture. It wouldn't undo all the deaths, but it would be an amazing gesture. I think we should get Richard Sackler on the phone and have a look. I think we could, I mean, maybe we could do some good here. 
Um, did you ever try Oxy? Never did. All right. Did you ever try heroin? Never did. Okay. More important. It's good. More importantly, before you go, your podcast, Wind of Change, is like the greatest thing I've ever heard. It's fucking unreal. Thank you. It, Thank you. Dopey Nation, if you, I mean, I know you guys are hooked on Dopey, but Wind of Change, it's this podcast that supposes the Scorpion's big hit, Wind of Change, was written by the CIA. And um, Patrick does a real deep dive. I never liked the word deep dive until I started experiencing your deep dive because it's very, it's very intense. Um, and, that was uh, fun. It was, well, as you, as you can imagine, that was, I was working on that while I was writing this book. And so it was just nice counter-programming for me well, because it's, it's you know, fun. It's fun and it's absurd. It's really fun. And the stakes are ultimately pretty low. Thank God. You know, I, I mean, yeah. all through this year, people were coming up to me and they said, Oh, did you know that the CIA actually wrote wind of change? <laughs> and I was like, and I was telling everyone that was the truth. You know what I mean? And, uh, and today I, I listened it. to Hello Klaus, you know, the final mm-hmm. episode, and uh, I love you uh, sitting. No, no spoilers here, please. Okay, no spoilers. So I'll leave it at that. Well, when I want you to come back on Dopey and talk about Wind of Change. Holy I'd love shit. To. Anytime. Pat- pleasure. Patrick, uh, thank you so much. I, I hope you've enjoyed. Oh, this is really fun. The, yeah, thank the, you. The addicts experience of, of uh, Empire of Pain. Dopey Nation, Empire of Pain is a fucking killer book. Check it out. Even listening to it was just so good, so rich. You know, oh, so much great you. language. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do one quick quote before you go, okay? Hold on, real quick. Sure. This is the quote I loved. And it wasn't even that major. It was just something that I heard it and I had to write it down. You were talking about the, the trial. Um, and, uh, and Richard was being uh, cross-examined by, I think, a Southern lawyer. And you described Richard's face, a mask of exquisite condescension which I just loved, you know. I think you just, you're an amazing writer and an amazing well, podcaster, thank and thank you for taking the time and coming on our little show. Oh, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. 300th episode, Patrick. It's a big deal. It's an honor. All right. Thank you, man. Thanks, man. Take Later. care. So that was Patrick Radden Keefe, and you, you say that was the best interview you ever heard me do, which made me feel good. Yeah, Dave was, um, Dave... Dave takes the train now to the city, so it's weird because he's not home really anymore after we've been together for a year and a half, nonstop, both working from home. And um, it was feels like overnight, but it's not overnight. It's it's after about almost a year and a half. He's now back taking the train to Manhattan four days a week, where he leaves at you know before we're up in the morning and comes home at like quarter to seven. And um, when I try to talk to him during his commute, he can't talk because he's on a quiet train. So he's like... But the you, truth is, I, he's can't, like, I just can't talk on the train. He's like, what do you want? <laughs> okay, is everything okay? Like, I just can't deal with his voice and that, like, that weird tone. The truth is, let me just be honest with you for a second. Right. I don't know which car is the quiet car in the morning, first of all. No, talking on the train is annoying. It's I get so it. bad. Yeah. I hate those are, people. They talk on the train. I, it's like, so I can't believe what Monty's doing. <laughs> oh, my God. I can't believe it. He wanted to have chicken last night, right. and everyone's listening to you? Yeah. It's like, what the fuck? So after I listened to this, uh, Dave sent me the interview, and uh, I go for my bike ride, and I listened to it, and it was so good. 
And um, did you listen to it on the bike ride? Yeah. And so I called him, and he and I'm like ready to be like, and I was so excited to just tell him, you know, I was excited because I thought it was really good, and I was like, and he's like, I'm glad you liked it. <laughs> what did you think? What are you wearing? What's going on? And I was like, I was like, I was like, I gotta go. So then I just started texting him. I'm like, I thought it was real. Then we just had to do it through text. And I was, you know, I was telling him that I thought it was good. But um, you know, besides you being so great doing the interview, I, in addition to that, he the story is so incredible. And um he clearly has this, you know, true joy and passion and and investigating these kind of stories. So you know, and you cool. can you can feel that and you know I love I love hearing people talk about stuff they're so passionate about and it's it is such a I mean it's like such a prevalent story for the podcast because it's about opiates and how they have made their way into everybody's lives, you know? Totally. And and also just like the the he approaches like I never understood like obviously I'm not the biggest reader. You know what I mean? I'm right. not the biggest I'm not the biggest newspaper reader. I'm not the biggest investigative journalist fan. So those I'm aren't not, the things you watch either when you're relaxing at night. You don't no. put on documentaries. Rarely. Unless it's about, you know, the Rolling Stones. Right. Rarely, rarely will I put on a documentary that is not about music right. or art. Or you know what I mean? Like I, I, I music, pretty you, much. No, I like yeah, mostly. Music. <laughs> um, so I watch stuff about painting and Listen, stuff, but mostly definitely. music. Let's just um, keep it to music. Anyway. Um, Black jazz. I like that. I know. Um, but I watch rock and roll. <laughs> I, this fucking <laughs> Amazon just made this, doc, or Hulu made this documentary about the band, but it was all about Robbie Robertson. And oh, it was and like, his voice. Talk about like annoying voices. I couldn't even listen to it from another room oh my god that movie and the band is like my favorite band yeah. and i just want to kill myself watching it like the band is my favorite is one of my favorite favorite bands and it's funny because they only have two good records and they have all these bad records but those two good records are so mm -hmm. good and that movie is so disappointing i didn't even get to the dope part they were all heroin addicts yeah. except for robbie but anyway the point of the story was i i wasn't into investigative journalism and you see this guy, Patrick Radden Keefe, and he's an artist. You know yeah. what I mean? He does it with so much passion and so much, like, ability. It's, like, fucking crazy. The way he writes is crazy. Mm -hmm. And then, like, we were talking about his podcast at the end, Wind of Change, which yeah. your brother has been talking about for a year. Yeah. And just the joy of his investigative process and the way he describes everything he finds... It's like when you observe anybody who's a master at anything, right. when I observe anybody who's a master at anything, it relaxes me. Mm -hmm. It makes me feel comfortable. It makes me like so happy. You to feel like take care of. Right. You know, you like, like, you know, everything's going to be okay because they're <laughs> doing a good job. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, and that's how this guy was. And um, and I could tell he enjoyed doing the show too because it was a different perspective for oh, him. Oh sure. And I thought that was really, really, really uh, awesome. Now, because this is the Dopey Podcast, um, and it is the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit, I thought we should read at least one email, if not two, and hear from 
Do you want to hear from Dave Masculani celebrating the 300th episode, or do you want to hear a fucked up drug story, or do you want to hear uh, like another fucked up drug story? Um, let's hear like another fucked up drug story. The other one is uh, this one is tough. Here, read this. You want to read this one? Sure. Okay. From the top. Like so many of your listeners, I've been a faithful follower and a Patreon supporter since hearing your story on This American Life. But I do not consider myself to be part of your dopey nation because I'm not an addict. For a long time, I worried that I had no business even listening into the stories you bring to life on your podcast. Here, hold on for one second. You should be able to be a member of the dopey nation even if you're not an addict, wouldn't you say? Lynn, you're not an addict. Um, yeah. All right, continue. But this is how they feel. All right, continue. Um, but I've come to think that I'm probably not alone among your listeners with a very different perspective on your alt recovery movement. Mm. I'm the mother of a movement was in quotes. Uh-oh. I'm the mother of an addict and have struggled with the effect of this disease on families for years while my son endured his own struggle. He finally found meaningful recovery almost four years ago. Because I absolutely recognize addiction as a disease prone to relapse, I enjoy his recovery with guarded optimism, and I'm so proud every day to watch him build his life. Early on, when it became impossible for me to continue denying my son's frightening illness, I tried to find my own help in the Al-Anon program. This program didn't work for me, as I would leave meetings with little hope and increased fear after hearing stories of pain, fear, and despair, as family members helplessly watched our loved ones fall into this disease over which we have no control. It's hard to explain, but I found the most relief at open AA meetings, where I found the stories of the alcoholics and addicts themselves to be much more hopeful, inspiring, and informative. While the 12-step Alnon program is for me, um, I found your podcast to be my own sort of alt-recovery program. I gotten so much enjoyment, hope, education listening to the stories of your guests, friends, and family members. After hearing your story on NPR, I never felt a need to go back to the older episodes of your podcast. I got enough of the story on the radio to feel the shock and pain of Chris's death. I don't want to relive it. For me, your podcast is about observing your recovery and the hope and inspiration it gives me as I support my son in his recovery. He's only a few years behind you, so I see so many parallels in the journey that is still in its early stages. I want to thank you for what you do, and I'd like to say that you are an insightful, talented interviewer. Your questions and observations are delivered with such unique perspective that only an addict would have. You get to the heart of the story with humor and compassion at the same time, sharing your common experiences with those of your guests such that you relate with your guests rather than simply interviewing. You need to give yourself more credit for that. Because of your talent, I've come to feel that your Dopey Nation are a part of my own virtual family that I also care for deeply. So to all your listeners and to you, I would like to say, stay strong, Dopey Nation, and fucking toodles for Chris. That's a nice email. That wasn't the one that I wanted you to read. Um, you liked that, that email, though, because she praised you as an interviewer. Well, that was nice, right? A nice praise. Yeah, and I, um, I think that she is very eloquent in her writing. Well, I think that, um, you know, one of the things about doing the show for, you know, 270 weeks, one of the stories of the show, and it's like it, it, it garners a shitload of criticism that the show isn't the same show. Right. And, and it's because things change, right. you know, fucking like I always say, like, 
Chris died and and we and Todd died and like the things show, have things are gonna have to change and and I and like my you know my recovery isn't always getting better and better but sometimes it does and I benefit from working my program and like learning shit and going to meetings and stuff and like that's kind of like what she was you know I appreciated that like, what I what I, can I just say that what I appreciated about what she was saying too is that. She was basically, she was also utilizing the alt recovery movement for people who are in relationship with an addict, so a mother, a partner. So she was also saying that she went to Al Anon, which is kind of like where you're supposed to go to get help to, to understand, you know, an addict. And that didn't work for her. So she found comfort and relief in listening to Dopey. So she also found an alternative uh, support system than your typical one that people would do. So most people would go to, I got to go to Al-Anon because my son, or I got to go to Al-Anon because my husband, and that didn't work for her. So she found the relief in listening to Dopey because she would hear stories about addicts that were in recovery, and that gave her support and help. So I think that that's she's using the alt the alt recovery movement for herself in a different way too. Does totally. that make? Do you understand what I'm saying? You're looking yeah. at me like you. No, no, no. I think I I think that's great, and I love the fact that it just shows that there's other ways to get support and help than what people might say. This is the road you're supposed to go right. down. Right, Alan is what works for right. you, and that is what I know. Lots of people because I you know when I worked in programs and they'll you know they pr- pretty much force people to go to Alanon. And, and, and like, like, well, you must go, you have to go to Al-Anon. And like, that doesn't necessarily help everybody. Right. Like, like AA doesn't help everybody. Right. Like so she NA said she left Al-Anon feeling like, like distressed, but she listened to Dopey for the same reason an addict might listen to Dopey in Addict in Recovery. She listened to Dopey too and got the same relief for her, uh, for trying to cope with her son. Well, I, so think, I think that's really cool. I think it is cool. I think the coolest thing is that like, you know, my, my favorite idea, and, and the all, I mean, I have, you know, I have a meeting with uh, Dr. Nzinga Harrison in June to kind of, like, get her take on the alt-recovery movement and to try to get some muscle behind the hustle of the oh. alt-recovery Who movement. Who says that? I do. Oh, okay. I'm going to put some it muscle. It like you were quoting No, I, I'm sure somebody said it. Um, but the point is... You should, you should also... Like trademark that muscle behind, muscle the, hustle. behind the hustle. That All could right. be like the black and white in every bite. <laughs> yes. Did I tell you? Did I tell you what happened with that? Did I tell no, you? No, we haven't talked about that. All right. Well, which has been great. I I personally believe that as great as Dopey is, mm-hmm. and as great oh, as oh that the, you're going to make your millions off of the black and white cookie. It's or it's, the black and white in every bite. What is it called? The Othello. The Othello cookie, and pretty soon you're going to be wearing Othello tank tops. And you know who was supposed to be in on the Othello, yes. right? Who? Um, I forgot his name, but from Top Chef. Gregory Gorday right, right. had signed up to be the great black hope of the Othello cookie. And, uh, and him and I communicate here and there. And um, I bugged him a lot. And you know what he wrote me recently? Leave me alone. He said, I don't think I share your passion for this project. Oh, no, he said that, and he Aww, said that was so nice—a nice way of saying it. And he said, he said, I'll help you find somebody else. And I said, okay. And he said, but I'm gonna be in New York soon, and I want to come meet you. 
So I'm going to. That's so funny that way he said that. I'm going to meet with him in June and I'm going to get him back on board. He's not. Pa- he's being honest with you. He's not passionate I about know. your project. I know. But you need to respect that. I, I know. I know. See, this is like a, a repeat of what? Artie Lang. What do you mean? <laughs> it was not. I have, not, I have nothing like that. You're like harassing this, he, this top chef. He writes me back, though. Artie doesn't write me back. He writes me back. He writes well, me back all the time. For now, but he's pretty soon going to get an order of protection together. like he's, everyone else. He said he wanted to go to Russ and Daughters with me and have, uh, have locks and uh, whitefish and stuff. Wow. Listen, I think Gregory Gourdet and I were, are going to be on Top Chef pitching the He Othello. does not share your passion. Forget Top Chef. We're going to go on Shark Tank. He will find the passion. I will find it for him, and it'll this happen. sounds very aggressive. It'll be fine. <laughs> it's going to be good. I'm getting scared. Um, my point is, with the alt-recovery movement, my real belief, and, and as evident from that uh, woman's letter, is that there's a shoe for every foot. You know what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. there is, It's like if you're out there and you haven't found your fucking thing, your fucking thing is out there somewhere. Right. And it's just, I personally believe it's about putting the muscle behind the hustle, okay. which is really just what getting else we in got there. Going? You want to hear, David, uh, you want to hear from Masculani? Yeah, I want to hear from Do you want to call my dad or do you want to hear a really crazy drug story? Um, wow. Those are my options. Those are your options. Can I, do I have to pick one? <laughs> yes. Uh, let's do David. Okay. This is the scribe of the dopey nation. Uh, from the thunder down under, the David, thunder down under, Dave Masculoni, and this is his uh, wishing the Dopey Nation a happy three hundred. That's not it. That's not it. What is that? That's my favorite Dopey song. Oh boy. Linda doesn't like this one. I it it makes me wanna like lose my mind. Yeah. Dopey 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 Oh, God, it's not over. No, it goes on for two and a half minutes. There you go. Congratulations on making it to 300 episodes, Dave, and everybody else who helps make the show. It is a remarkable achievement, and the fact that you, Dave, have not missed one episode is astonishing. I very much appreciate your efforts. You should be very proud of yourself. What you and Chris started all those years ago has brought joy to me and others and has saved many a life. Thank you. Stay strong. Fucking toodles for Chris. And peace and love for Todd, Colleen and all the other dearly departed. Thank you. I love that. Yeah. I can't believe everybody that died. I like can't, whenever I hear them. I know start when you going, hear the names. Oh, uh, because he doesn't even scratch the surface right. of the people, and still, like I love Dave Masculani. He is one of uh, just the people that that represent the Dopey Nation. Can I tell you who his voice reminds me of? 
Alfred Hitchcock? Yes. Yeah. Have you, that's probably been said already. Sam said it to me today. I just was thinking, I mean, I loved, I was listening to his words, but I'm like, he sounds just like Alfred Hitchcock. Now I know you're That's gonna... a compliment because Alfred Hitchcock has a great voice. So Linda wanted to do this whole thing about apologies. And like Linda, Linda like is listening to all these like Brene Brown and you know Harriet Tubman. Who? <laughs> who's the who's the Harriet woman that you listen to? She listened to Brene Brown and, no. and uh Tim Ferris and all these people. I love this podcast called The Happiness Lab. The Happiness Lab. It's so good. Um, no, I mean, I Harriet Lerner taking a walk, listening, in the car, listening. She's cooking, listening. She always grabs me. She goes, Dave, come here. Listen to Brene talk about vulnerability. And I'm like, okay. Mm-hmm. And the truth is they're all pretty amazing. And recently, Linda, why don't you, why don't you, when you, she started, you started telling me about like, the the function of apologies. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I um, I've never been a big f- podcast person because when I have my spare time, you know, with like you know s- s- a toddler and 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 or you know also as being a therapist, like whenever I have like my own time, I want to just like watch like. Housewives or Shark Tank or Paint a Rock. Like, I don't want to have to, um, I don't listen to people talking. I just feel like I then that's what I, the, I never understood about podcasts. It's like, why when you're relaxing do you want to hear people talk? I'm like, when I'm relaxing, I want to hear, like, you know, I don't want to hear any talking or I hear a conversation, but just I almost, I honestly feel like over the last like two months, I've all of a sudden understood podcasts and like why what it is that that makes people like them um like them like I get it I never got it and it's funny because I'd and I mean I'm only talking literally like maybe the last two months that now I will take I'm so excited to take a bike ride and listen to a episode of a podcast and um never dopey no I mean I've listened I'll listen to I've listened to dopey but I, I it's no, this is, but this is like, I listen to Dopey, but I'm not listening to, I'm listening to it and it has a lot of different, it's, it's listening to you. I'm a, playing. I don't expect you to right. listen to Dopey. So this is like me, like I will find, um, you know, I, yes, I'm hooked on Unlocking Us, which is Brene's, Brene Brown's podcast, but I just, I like Brene Brown. I think she's great, but I love her guests and, and, and the subjects. I love psychology. I love anything that's about, you know, humanity and what, with the way our mind, I love like, I love like neuroscience shit and like the parts of our brain that are affected by this or that. I love like Gabar Mate. I always talk about him. I love, you know, I, that I, to me, like you were saying when any, any, whenever somebody like is an expert and just knows stuff inside and out, it's very relaxing, like a Ted talk or whatever. Like that's how I feel about that I feel like that too when I listen to a, a podcast and then somebody's just talking about those kind of things. I feel very calm. I'm not like it's not making me anxious when somebody's talking about like what happens to your brain when you're having like an anxiety attack. I'm like, this is so relaxing. Like I love learning that stuff. Anyway, so I listened to an episode on Unlocking Us, which is Brene Brown podcast, and it's this woman Harriet Lerner who I love. Blah blah blah. She's um. Amazing. And she wrote a book called Why, let me tell you the exact title of her book. 
It was called Why Can't We Apologize? Um, or Why Won't You Apologize? And the whole, and it was a double episode. It was a two hour double episode. I listened to this podcast twice. Oh, I back to back, I listened to it twice. It was that good. Um, and really what it was about was about how she feels that the two most important words in the English language are I'm sorry. And that really resonated with me because she said nothing can change another person's feelings as quickly as those two words. So like you have the power to actually make somebody feel better. Um, and Acknowledge and them. By by acknowledging that they're you know that they've been hurt, like just now, Linda was trying to do this bit, oh God. and I was distracted trying to take the phone case off my phone, and Linda got very annoyed with me, and then I said, "I'm sorry, I wasn't paying attention." My mom, we went. I went out to lunch with my mom today. It was my birthday lunch, and we were. Ta- I was telling my mom about this podcast because I can't stop talking about this podcast uh, with this woman, Harriet Lerner, and because it, it really like changed me. It was really p- profound, and uh, so I was telling my mom about it. She goes, "You know, Dave is very good at apologizing," <laughs> and I'm like, "Well, he ha- he gets a lot of fucking practice." Well, because he's always having to apologize. Um. You know, I'm kidding, but I'm not because you half are you are a very good apologizer. Well, half of half of being in twelve step has been like, I mean, right. half that's of my Long mom Island, said. I bet it's part of his 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 recovery work. I well, said I don't know, well, but it's half, good. Half of Long Island twelve step is keep your fucking mouth shut. That's like half of Long Island recovery is You're so fucking stupid. Keep your fucking mouth shut. Right? Why you fucking even say anything? Um, I really agree with that. And then the other half of it is fucking apologize for your part. And I am very sorry for being distracted. Um, And I think that, like, we have found, like, I mean, we're, like, in, you know, things have been pretty smooth lately. So what I was sharing to Dave was that, you know, what they talked about was a twofold, and, and one of them really resonated with me, which is, when somebody it's it's it, there's one thing to learn how to be a good apologizer but they also talk about sometimes when when you've been so hurt and somebody apologizes to you it's okay to take to, time. to to take to hold that space and to say you know to th- always thank that person for that apology because it takes a lot for someone to apologize but you don't have to say oh it's okay or or you know or to or to shame, you don't want to shame them either. And so it's it's such a like a delicate dance. But what I why I told Dave I found this so interesting is because I think in the world of addiction, there's so much hurt. There's 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 often a lot to apologize for. Well, I think there's I, a lot of apologies that happen when you're when you're wrapped up in an addictive world. Well, you you also tend to make mistake after mistake after mistake. And I feel like when I first got sober you know, you were very much like, I appreciate that apology. and I'll, But. Yeah, and I'll keep it here. You know, you basically did that even before you heard this thing. So that'll lead me, so this doesn't go on and on, but that's a good segue to this little parable that I wanted to share that just, you know, I found to be very beautiful, is that 
I think especially with Dave and I, with his addiction, he apologized a lot, and I knew he meant those apologies, but I also knew he was going to keep using because this was very early on. Um, his apologies now are like every couple's apologies. Like, I'm sorry I had an attitude. or You know, like, we, we apologize now over, like, not such serious stuff because we're, you know, our lives are a little different. But back in the day, the apologies were over some really profound shit. You know, and so and and when the things kept happening, the receiver, as much as they say, you know, I appreciate that apology, it gets to a point where you need them to actually show some action. The words are the words only go so far. You know, you need them to now start to Do also to, and and they actually say for the dopey nation. That's what was so interesting about this. What they say part of an apology can also be like these are the things I'm going to do you know, to, in order to sort of show. And, like, that also feels really helpful when you can hear that there's going to be an action plan. Well, and then you have to see the action, Then though. you have to see the Because if plan. you don't see the action, then the apology becomes bullshit. Right. So what's the parable? So this is the parable that I thought was really cool. Um, and it's this, I always, I see, I, Dave, is, Dave is Jewish, so I thought it was Hasidic, but it's actually Hasidic? You were the one that knew this for some reason. No, Ancient it, ascetic. I think it's ascetic, ascetic. which is like, uh, you know, like A C I D I C. I think it's not transcribed properly. Oh, this I think is it's from a transcript. I think it's ascetic, which is like when from the Bible. No, I know the ascetics. I think ascetics are incredibly religious people who go into the forest and live these crazy austere lives. The only reason I know about it is because in the story of the Buddha, one of his phases is when he went to live with the ascetics oh, in the woods. Okay. And they don't eat and they rub themselves with mud and they meditate for days on end. Anyway. Continue. Okay, so this is it. So according to an ancient... But I could be wrong. It could be Hasidic or ascetic. I don't know what the fuck it is. So according to an ancient ascetic, we'll, ascetic. we'll just go with Dopey that. Dopey Nation, write an email if you know. Oh my gosh, lots of... Uh, emails being requested. This I episode. love the emails. Keep going. So, according to an ancient ascetic parable, a king quarrels with his son, and in a fit of rage, exiles his son from the kingdom. After a number of years, the king's heart softens, and he sends his ministers to find his son and ask him to come home. But the young man resists the invitation. He feels too bitter to return and hurt to return. When the ministers present the sad news to the king. He sends them out again with a new message for his son. Return as far as you can, and I will come the rest of the way to meet you. That's very nice. So now, what does that mean to you? Well, it reminds me of a lot of harm reduction people that I hear talking all the time now, which is, we'll meet you where you're at. You know, And nobody could have met me where I was at you know, when I was out there. But we'll meet you. It, it means... It means show some effort, and I will show some effort, and let's get the show on the road together. That's what it means to me. So that is not what it means to me. What does it mean? I'm probably wrong. What does it mean? No, but it, it mean, I mean, to me, it means that um, when you've wronged somebody, which clearly the king has wronged his son by banishing him and sending him away because, you know, which you should never do to your own kid. You know, he just sent him away. And when they he sent out his people to go get him, the son was like, I'm way too hurt by you. And that's not a, that's not enough for me to return. And instead and what, what and what was 
powerful to me is instead of having them go, he sent them back out again, but I didn't expect that to be what he said the second time. I thought he was going to say to tell him he's so sorry or, you know, what can I do to have you come back, you know, more words. But instead, the king said, come as far as you can, even if it's a half a step, and I will go the rest of the journey. So what does it mean to you? Meaning that I will do, because the, the, the king wronged him, he was the one apologist, essentially the apologizer, right? So I will do everything you need me to to make you feel to make the apology stick. That's right. Because I did the wrong thing. That's right. All right. So that's nice. And that's and that's not often how apologies go down. And I do think that that's that is what people need. They need the person to show I will do everything in my power to show you. If you've wronged somebody, the way to properly apologize is to do that. To say, I will do everything. I in know my... it's my bad, and, and I'm going to take responsibility. And I will it. do everything in my power to show you that I'm, I'm going to make the amends and make things okay. Right. And, and that, the, most right. people don't hear, what I'm saying is most people don't hear that in an apology. It's well, most people word, who bullshit make, words. But yeah, most people who make an apology aren't willing to do that work, aren't willing to go that far. Right. Now on this is I think that's very beautiful and on that note <laughs> now we're moving on we're gonna call my dad and see oh. if he's still awake because I have amends to make to that's, him. Okay, so Dave is now going to meet his father where he's at. And I'm gonna change in the in, in Manhattan. Check check. Are you still awake? Yeah, yeah, I am. I well, am awake. So listen, this is the 300th episode of Dopey, and I want to apologize to you. Hi, Alan. Oh. Hi, Linda. Hello. You're about to get an apology. I'm not sure what for, so buckle up. No. All right, I'm waiting to hear what he's going to say. So. <laughs> I'm very, very, very sorry for telling you that you were too critical in the last episode and embarrassing you in front of your lady friend on the Dopey podcast. Well, it was, I had, I, I had lunch with, you know, my dear friends, Seymour and, and uh, Gary and Rita and Harriet, and they were upset with you too. So, wait a minute, they agreed that I was not good. They agreed, they agreed that you had legitimate reasons for your criticism. You didn't have to, do it over the dopey podcast, though. He's upset because I told I told the story about him criticizing Nora's drawing. Oh boy! I now, I never criticized it. Now, Dad, I'm making it up tomorrow for sure. Oh, you're going to see how good I'm going to be tomorrow. I'm telling you, Alan, you're an amazing grandfather. Don't listen so to just him. Just relax, Lynn. Now, Dad, are you ready to apologize to me? For what? For being so critical that you turned me into an intravenous heroin addict? Oh, give me... Oh, <laughs> Are you ready to, to meet me where I'm at and do your work, Dad? Because that's, that's the second... I think it's time for you to make your apology to me for, for all of those years of overly criticizing me all the time. That's not true. That's not true. Let me ask you this question, Dad. You ready? 
for my for my bar mitzvah, right? When I when I had some sort of learning disability and I couldn't learn Hebrew and I needed to do my Haftorah, right? Who wrote it out in phonetics? I guess I did. And for years afterwards, who mocked me for doing the Haftorah in phonetics? Well, let's go back a little bit. You didn't have any learning disability. You, for some reason, refused to, to work and learn in, in Hebrew school. Lazy. It, it, was, it, was you, it was you being a goof-off. You could have learned Hebrew. You could have done it perfectly. And you did the Haftorah perfectly. Except... You wrote it out in phonetics and then blamed me for doing it in phonetics. Since this is now a show about apologies, are you ready to make your apology to me? I, I was very proud of you that you actually did the hot toe beautifully. You did a great, great This job. is not a real... He's not meeting me where I'm at. Anyway, this is the 300th episode, Dad. What do you have to say to the Dopey Nation? I th- I look, I think the Dopey Nation is absolutely wonderful. I'm telling you, you're doing a great job. The people out there are so helpful. I mean, I've been reading some of the stories, and they come through and help people that really need help. And uh, and there wouldn't be any Dopey Nation without you and Chris, and you, and you kept it going. I mean, you're keeping it going, which is great. I mean, a lot of people need a lot of help out there. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Are you surprised that I've kept it going for this long? Look, the point is, is that you are now healthy, and when you're healthy, you're terrific. I mean, right. the, uh, the Dopey Nation knows that you were not so great uh, 11 years ago. That's for sure. You were not great 12 years ago. Now you you got everything together, and uh, you're showing what you can do. I mean, you always wanted to do this, so you're doing it. Yeah. Why, Dad, why did you hate the last Jewish waiter sizzle reel so much? Oh, because you were you were you were back at your old ways in that in that episode. It was pretty awful, I thought. Uh, it looked to me it looked to me that you were you were not my David that I that uh, that I want you to be in that stupid real thing. Um, but in uh, what? In the well, the, the last the real. Greater, was pretty funny stuff, but not that real. That real wasn't so good uh, at all. So, Dad, you're not willing to apologize for your part in my drug addiction now, now that we're doing this apology shtick? No. Uh, I refuse. I will not let you off the hook on this. And this is, this is for the whole Dopey Nation as well. This idea of blaming other people is not going to get you anywhere. The king is mm. not meeting me where I'm at, Linda. No, that you're you're misinterpreting the parable. Are you sure? You're the one that you're the king, and your dad is the one that you should be meeting. I've already think? met him. I I apologize. <laughs> now it's his turn. I think we're confusing you who's who in the you, parable. You want me to apologize for something that 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 is not true and doesn't make me feel feel good that you're even mentioning it. You're gonna go to your grave never acknowledging your part in my incredible crippling addiction. <laughs> well, Alan, just yeah, ignore yeah. him. All right, Dad, I love you. I, I just wanted you to be on the, on the 300th episode. I'm glad you were. All right, all right. And I love both of you, too. We love you. We'll see you tomorrow. Yeah, you're going to criticize Susan's artwork tomorrow, Dad? No, you kidding. You should see what, what I have for, for, for Nora. I'm bringing Susie big presents, but Nora is also getting presents. Oh, that's good. Very wise. Yeah, that was smart. Very wise. Good move, Alan. Yeah, you see, I know, I know what's up. See, I, I know how to do it. <laughs> I, and by the way, listen, listen carefully. Uh, Ginny and Seymour looked at Nora's work 
And they said it was amazing. And they, they said how much talent she has as an artist. Uh, you know, <laughs> me not saying how wonderful it was was a major mistake. But they think it's uh, they think it's just fantastic, and that's exactly what I'm telling you. So they thought you were a jerk off too. Yeah, they did. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> Alan, it wasn't that bad. Uh, yeah, I know it. I know it, you know, you're David makes makes fun of me for the Dopey Nation. I yeah. know. I, I, I listen. The Dopey Nation is still behind me. That's for sure. Yeah, that's, that's, at least I hope so. Well, happy 300th episode. Do you want to wish them a happy 300th episode before we get off of this thing? I want, I want to wish them uh, good health and keep up good work and uh, support each other and stay strong, Dopey Nation, and toodles for Chris. All right, good night, Dad. We'll see you tomorrow. I love you. Night, Thank you Alan. For Bye. I can't wait till I get my apology, though. Uh, yes. Yeah, keep waiting. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Now, before we go, <laughs> I want to read uh, the drug story because the Dopey podcast is supposed to be about drug stories. Okay, this is just for, for this is a, a vintage drug story. All right. Uh, come with me back to 2014. I'm an IV heroin addict living in Madison with my boyfriend, Austin. We're doing about $600 worth of heroin every other day between the two of us. I'm also eating an ungodly amount of benzos every day. Xanax, Lorazis, K-pins, literally whatever I could get my hands on. I was taking benzos to the point I was having seizures if I didn't take them. Good decisions. My boyfriend, Austin, just got out of prison a couple of months before this. He's back on dope as well. A little background on Austin. He was big into get into the getting bud through the mail from out west, which matters for this story. Austin also has been using IV heroin since he was 15. He went to prison when he was 18 uh, for four years for selling heroin to a girl that overdosed and died. He got out. He went back to prison because he nodded out driving and someone called him in and he had five pounds of weed in the trunk. He did two years in the joint for that. Uh, then he got out, and that's when this story takes place. I threw all that in there because I'm sure Dave was wondering. So Austin is getting money to get Bud in the mail for his boss from prison. He was at a prison where he could go to work and, of course, made friends with the owner of the company who likes Bud. For the sake of the story, we'll call him Boss Man. So we're going out to eat with Boss Man and his family because he's about to give us $10,000 for Bud. Like, literally, nice wife, nice-ass kids, and us. Me being me, I'm on my, like, six lorazepam for the day, feeling good, feeling normal. So we go out to eat at his bar and restaurant. And coincidentally, some girl we knew was tending bar, and I got a vodka Red Bull, and she makes it a triple. And we all know how good a combination of benzos and alcohol are. Plus, I obviously had heroin in my system. I needed that to live. The last thing I remember is our appetizer coming out, which was nachos, and then a blackout. I woke up at like midnight sleeping in a pitch black room next to Austin. It took me a second to figure out where I was. It was my room. Austin wakes up because I woke I wake up and say, Kaylee, if you ever like act like that again, I'm never talking to you again. Of course, my next question Oh, Austin wakes me up. Uh, because I wake up and he says, that's the woman's name is Kaylee. Kaylee, if you ever act like that again, I'm never talking to you again. Of course, my next question is, what happened? And I tell him to fill me in. Apparently at dinner, I told boss man's eight-year-old son that I would slap the shit out of him if he ever dabbed a bed bug. 
because Austin and I had just watched this news story about people literally smoking bag bugs out of dab rigs. Check it out on YouTube for a good laugh. As if that isn't cringy enough, there's more. So apparently when we are leaving, I was standing outside wearing boss man's coat. I somehow had enough time to put his coat on and take all of his stuff out of his pockets and fill them with my belongings. Then Austin and his boss came outside and boss man is like, that's my coat. And I was like, no, no, this is my coat. Then apparently I tried to show them my stuff was in the pockets and Austin had to wrangle the coat away from me, which telling this story still makes me laugh out loud to this day. But in ending, we still got the money, still got him bud, lied about the cost and went and bought a ton of heroin. I figured you would like this story. Thank you for what you do, Dave. People need you and the podcast. Peace out, Dave, Dopey Nation, and motherfucking toodles for Chris. <laughs> so I think that that's is funny. I think that's a fun, stupid. What did she say to the eight-year-old about bed bugs? I didn't understand that. Basically, she said, "I will slap the shit out of you if you ever dab a bed bug." And dabbing. What is does like, that mean? It's like when you take one of those torches and you like. It's like you you superheat. I guess people smoke bed bugs. So they're killing the bed bugs. But smoking them with a with a fire, with a flame. Oh my goodness. So yeah, check out So she started yelling at his son to not do that. Yeah, for no reason. <laughs> and then stole his the father's. Oh my coat. gosh, that kid was probably traumatized. Like, totally freaked out. Somebody needs to make an apology and meet somebody else where they're at, I think. Yeah, she owes somebody an apology. Well, this is the three hundredth episode. Linda, thank you. Thank you. Was it the best time of your life? Oh, I I've, it's been a while. I forgot how much fun this is. And uh, you want to say, say goodnight to the Dopey yeah, Nation? Yeah, no, goodnight, Dopey Nation. And um, stay strong. Toodles for Chris. 300. I'll be back for 600. How's that sound? 600. I think <laughs> that's I think in like three years from now. I think he'll be back sooner than that. Yeah. Uh, stay strong, Dopey Nation. I'm, thank you for everybody that does anything in the show. Thank you, Sam. Thank you, Ray. Thank you, Cormac. Thank you. Fucking Facebook administrators, Andrew, Catherine, Paulina, um, Catherine. Should I leave anybody out? Andrew, Catherine, Paulina. I just say everybody because there's a huge family of people. And Leah. Leah and fucking Cormac and Matt and Misty and everybody. Yeah. Everybody out there. I, I, yeah, I can leave you, everybody. Right, out. there's just so too many. many people. It's a it's a huge it's a big it's a big big old dysfunctional family. It is a big old dysfunctional family, and I just got a text from this guy, Daniel Brock, and Daniel Brock is a Dopey Nation guy who works for Facebook, and he's been donating right. money for Facebook ads. So I want to give him a big thank you, and. Uh, Alec is doing videos nowadays, and Nat is doing marketing. This is Dave, so sweet. He feels marketing. like he needs to give There's shout so many outs people. and thanks to people on every anniversary of Dopey. I just think that, like, no, I nice. like to take all the credit for this show, but like a shitload of people help me make it. That's all. All right. All right. Stay strong, Dopey Nation, and fucking toodles for Chris. Do you think we'll do another 300 episodes? I do. You do? Oh, boy. That's it. Yes. One, two, three, four. Well, I want to take a walk around the world. 
walk around this neighborhood But I want to be good so bad Watch his arrow play.